This morning, we're going to be talking about love. Oh, oh, says everyone. One very particular facet of it. If you've got a Bible, I haven't put the scriptures up on the screen this morning because I want you to read it from in front of you. Grab a Bible and open it to Mark chapter 12. If you haven't got a Bible, snuggle up to someone who does, if it's appropriate. If it's not appropriate, we'll pray for you after the service. You should be close enough to smell them this morning. Everyone else wearing about five times more deodorant and cologne than they need to lately? No, your air conditioners must be good. All right, Mark chapter 12, starting at verse 28, says this. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which one, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. It's an interesting thing. There's a a couple of scriptures we're going to look at this morning, which God has kicked my butt with this week. And this is probably the first of them, that the greatest commandment is not that you are to do something for God. The greatest commandment is not that you give. It's not that you work. It's not that you go out and win a 100,000 people to salvation. The single greatest commandment is that you love. I'll say it again. The single greatest commandment is that you love. Now, it's easy for us to straight away go, oh, it's a cognitive thing. Let's have none of that emotional stuff. Let's just go with the cognitive, dissertative understanding of love. I choose to love when things get terrible. I choose to love. Therefore, that's the sort of love I'm supposed to have with God. I don't think it quite works that way. When we studied 1 John some time ago, it said that God is love and that those who know love know God and those who don't know love don't know God. And if the first and greatest commandment is that you are to love God with everything that you have, with your mind, with your heart, with your soul, with your strength, then loving God is actually giving back to God something that he gives to you in the first place, something of himself. We're going to have a look at what love looks like in a few different passages this morning. Here's a quote for us to begin with from Augustine of Hippo. He who is filled with love is filled with God himself. What does it look like to love God? What does it feel like to love God? I love my wife, but the love I have for my wife is not cognitive, dissertative love. The love that I have for my wife, imagine if she said, oh, Bob, I just love you so much. And I go, yes, you do. 
I understand that, and I also reciprocate those feelings. Things would be a bit frosty, I imagine. It's not just a cognitive love that we're supposed to have for God. Do you know God created your emotions? And everything in Scripture that we read about God at some point reflects an emotion that we have that God also has. We read that Jesus was tired, that he was worn out, that he was frustrated. We read that God gets angry. We read that God is a jealous God. We'll get to that. But this thing about love, what do you think when when we read in Scripture that God wants you to love him? more than anything else, more than anything you can do, more than any act, more than any deed, that you love God. I love kids. I love that my kids aren't the only ones that do this in church. It's good. (laughs) Turn over with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7, we'll start reading from verse 36. When one of the Pharisees, Luke seven thirty-six, when one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That was the normal thing in those days. People didn't really sit on chairs, they sat on cushions, and you would recline at the table. You would lay back and just chill out a bit and relax. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life The implication in the text here, by the way, is that she's a prostitute. That's what the text implies. That's what the usage of the word means. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. What a strange picture. Random woman rocks up to a Pharisee's house when he has a dinner guest over and she's so overcome with something, I don't know what it is, we'll find out, that she is weeping and weeping and weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears, then she wiped them with her hair. Remember, this is an age where people didn't really wear shoes. Maybe you had sandals. And often when you would go to someone's house, the first thing they would do is they would get a servant to come or the person of the house to honor you would actually get down on their hands and knees and they would wash your feet to get all the muck off, all the things you had stepped in, all of the dirt. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. This alabaster jar, by the way, there's a bit of discussion amongst people who look into these sorts of things. One argument is that this alabaster jar would have been part of her dowry, that it would have been the only thing that she had left, being someone who had entered into the profession which she had, that it would, it would have been incredibly unlikely in that culture that she ever would have married. And therefore, this is her dowry, is almost the last thing she had left, the last hope she had left. That's one theory about this alabaster jar. What we do know about it is that it was incredibly expensive. When you get home, hop on Google and look up alabaster jars. They're not cheap. They're something which people put a lot of time and a lot of effort, a lot of energy into. And for a jar like this, it wouldn't have just been corked shut. It would have had to have been broken open. The perfume that was inside it was that valuable. It was never to be used as a haphazard thing. It was not the perfume that you would have wore around each week. 
She wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, I love this, he said to himself, so he's not saying it to everyone else, he just says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Simon, we're about to learn his name is Simon, but this Pharisee says that to himself. He's like, oh, my goodness, I've invited him around for dinner. This random walks in. If he was really a prophet, if this guy really was from God, then he would know what's going on. He would understand what's happening here. Verse 40, Jesus answered him. Do you ever say something to yourself and then Jesus answers? Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell, something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Verse 41, two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, that's about a day's wages, and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. There's a lesson in that for Australian banks. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. This is where it gets confusing. Have a look at this. Have a look at the text in front of you. This is great. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman. So he's now looking at the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. What's Jesus doing? It's a comparison. Jesus is comparing Simon and the woman who was rocked up at his house. Verse 45, you did not give me a kiss. That was a normal sign of welcome. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, this is the strangest use of therefore I've come across in quite some time. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So wait a sec. Let's pause there. Close your Bible on your finger or you'll read on. So at this point, what's happened? Jesus has said, okay, someone who has been forgiven much loves much. Have a look at this woman's activities. Have a look at what she's done for me. These are all things of love. Therefore, on the basis of my observation, Jesus is saying, therefore, I tell you, she's only doing those things, therefore, because she has already been forgiven. That's the implication. He who has been forgiven much, loves much, and she is loving much. Therefore, the implication is she has been forgiven much. Open back up and have a look at this. Verse 48, then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. What? Does that seem a little out of order to you? Jesus is already saying she's loving much because her sins have already been forgiven. And then after that, Jesus then says, oh, your sins are forgiven. I won't tell you how many hours of sleep I lost because I didn't read the next couple of verses. Watch this. The other guests begin to say among themselves, who is this? who even forgives sins. Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What faith? What faith? What had she done in faith? What did she do in faith? 
Where are these acts of faith? We read about acts of faith in, in Hebrews chapter 11. Where, where, are, where are the acts of faith for this woman? She turns up and she loves Jesus. Jesus has not spoken to her. Jesus has not told her her sins are forgiven, but she loves much because she has already received receiving. That's not her. This happens when you preach. Just you wait. <laughs> She's already received her forgiveness as an act of faith. She turns up with an expectation that Jesus is already going to forgive her. She takes him at his word. Remember, this. have a look at where we are in Scripture. Okay, This is chronologically after the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has already been out there teaching, and this woman has heard about him. She has heard enough about what he has said that she rocks up to a Pharisee's house. If you were in the same position as this woman, a Pharisee would have been your arch enemy, would have been judgment central. And she rocks up because Jesus is there, and she rocks up and she loves because there is already something in her which has grasped hold of forgiveness. Forgiveness is waiting. And out of forgiveness, as an act of faith, receiving her forgiveness, Jesus not only says, fantastic, look at those acts of love, and he compares them to the Pharisee who does not love. But then Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. He actually tells her verbally the thing which she had already taken a step of faith about. And then Jesus says, go in peace. Jesus says, fantastic. Go and get on with your life. You're free. You're released. Your faith has saved you. It's an interesting thought, this idea of love, which is really what we're looking at this morning. Jesus says these down here in verse 47, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And I have really one question this morning. Do you love God? Do you love God? And deep inside you, you don't have to verbalize the answer to this question. Do you feel like you want to love him more? Because love for God anchors on our understanding of forgiveness. And if by faith we have received forgiveness. See, you and I receive forgiveness the same way that this woman does. Unless something genuinely ground-shaking has happened, you and I have not had a verbal face-to-face with Jesus where he has said, you are forgiven. So you and I receive our forgiveness from Jesus in faith, the same way that this woman did. And if there is something amiss with our love, with the way that we love him, with the way that we adore him, if we, if we think, you know, Lord, I remember there was a time where I loved you more. Lord, I remember when I was that age, I was just besotted by you. I adored you. You were the only thing that my heart wanted. Where I loved you so much that it hurt. But I'm not in that place now. What Jesus is saying in this passage of Scripture is if that's the position that we find ourselves in, there's an issue either with the faith aspect or with the forgiveness aspect. Faith. Do you ever think he can't really be serious? Jesus can't really forgive me, not after everything I've done. 
Because if that's where your thinking is, then that will stop you from loving him. That will actually inhibit the love that you have for Jesus. Is if you think, oh, it's, no, it's, it's just not working. And even though Jesus wants to love on you, even though Jesus wants to forgive you, even though all those things are already set up, that your default setting inside is actually an expression of non-faith. It's to go, no, 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 no. I've, I, it's just going to be too awkward if I try and pray. Oh, it's, I've got too much going on. No, I've, I've seen Christians and they all seem to have it together and I don't, which is false. But, you know, oh, and, and if your default setting is actually to keep not taking Jesus at his word, to keep saying, no, 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 my sin is bigger than you. The things I've done wrong are too big for you to handle. You don't want me. If you keep saying those things to yourself, those are anti-faith statements. You are saying to Jesus that he's not telling the truth. You are calling him a liar. You are not taking him at his word. And if you're constantly expressing unfaith or disfaith or anti-faith, then guess what? It's the forgiveness of Jesus is never going to sink in. You've got to deal with that. How do we do it? Well, we take him at his word. It is the most awkward, peculiar, strange thing in the entire universe that for everything that is wrong with you or with me, for every single thing that we have done, that we are doing, that we're going to do, that Jesus saw all of those things and he still said, I want you. I choose to take all of the things you have done off you onto myself and I will give you my inheritance. We've talked about it before. The early church fathers called it the great exchange. He takes your debt. He gives you his inheritance. Take him at his word. Of course you're not worthy because that's the default voice that all of us have. I'm not worthy of this. I don't deserve this. No, 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 no. I need to make myself feel more worthy and then it will all just settle into place. No, you'll always be unworthy. Each of us is always eternally unworthy. That's why we need a saviour. If you could make yourself good enough to deserve the love of God, Jesus would not have had to come. Faith is first and foremost an act of surrender. You have to let your guard down and let him come in. Every time you sin, it gets added to his burden at Calvary. Jesus does it willingly. Faith is not about trusting in how good you are. It's about trusting Jesus when he says that he is bigger than your sins. You know, in the grand scale of things, your sins are little. I don't care what they are. But compared to God, who is big, your sins are little. Your sins are little and God is big. And when he says he's big enough, we ought to take him at his word. That's the faith part, the forgiveness part. Who does Jesus compare this woman to? Pharisee. Someone who is part of the educated religious elite. Someone who has certainly spent a significant amount of time and energy studying scriptures. They've been around church for a while. And that's you and me for some of us. And that's who Jesus compares this woman to. And he says, you can see by their actions. He's talking to this guy called Simon. Oh, well, look, look at what you've done. Look at what she's done. She loves much because she understands she has been forgiven much. The implication for Simon is, Simon, you don't love much because you don't think you've been forgiven much. You do not grasp the depth of your own forgiveness. That's what he says to Simon. And we can fall into the same bucket. I'll tell you a story about a mate of mine called Dan. 
Dan is a carpenter who's also a minister's son, and minister's sons are brats. So I'm well aware that we're going to work on that with a couple of these young guys down here. But when I first met Dan, Dan and I got along really well because we would trade stories about all the stuff we used to get up to at church, running around hitting our heads on the pews when we were kids. But I wound up going into ministry and Dan wound up being a carpenter and I chatted to him one time because Dan hires staff very strategically in order that he can introduce them to Jesus. If they're willing, if they're prepared, introduce them to Jesus and just bless their socks off as a boss. Amazing guy. And I was chatting to him one time and I said, oh, you know, how are you going with your latest apprentice? And I forget the way the conversation had gone, but it was something along the lines of what we just said here, that, that the conversation wound up with this young apprentice saying, oh, you know, put in a good word for, with me for God, you know. So I, I'm not up to scratch with you guys. You guys are more holy than me. And Dan turned around and said to him, actually, I think we're in a worse position. I should ask you to put in a good word with me. And the apprentice turned to him and said, what do you mean? That doesn't make much sense. And Dan said, well, just think about it. You haven't grown up in the church. You haven't been around Christianity a long time. You haven't spent years and years walking and talking with Jesus. So when you screw up, when you mess up, when you sin, when you get angry or lustful or jealous or greedy or self-centered or lazy, when you do any of these things which the Bible calls sin, you don't have this huge background of understanding. When I sin, I know better. Tell me, does it hurt more when you get injured or ripped off or betrayed by someone that you don't know or by someone that you know? So to what greater depth, to what greater depth does our sin affect our relationship with Christ? Because you and I claim to know him. You and I claim to have walked with him, to have grown in intimacy with him, that we know his heart, we know the voice of his spirit. So when we sin, if anything, we are the ones who have been forgiven much. We're the ones who have understood forgiveness and grace to a greater depth than someone who has only just met Jesus or someone who's never met him. How do you see yourself? How do you see your forgiveness? How do you see your sin? We sin knowingly. Having met Jesus, we continue to sin. As my walk with Jesus goes on, I find an increasingly sharp sting because I know he will forgive me but I have hurt him at an even deeper level, and so have you. This makes me love him. The more I understand my own sinfulness, the more I understand how much I've been forgiven, the more I understand his grace, the more I love him, the more I adore him. That makes me want to kiss his feet, to wet them with my tears. And it should for you too. Question. When was the last time you got passionate about God? There was an article on the news website this morning, news.com.au. There was an article right up there. Psychologist or someone from a university talking about how 
people who are in relationships need to hold hands more. There needs to be this point of contact. There needs to be these little pecks on the cheek, these constant acts of intimacy to continue spicing things up. And we always hear about it in terms of relationships that we have with each other and with members of the opposite sex in this world and all those sorts of things. But when was the last time the relationship between you and God was actually passionate? How long has it been? Not passionate out of obligation, not, oh, right, I need to pray, or I need to read my Bible, not passionate out of a sense of ought, not because you had to, but because you actually wanted to, because there was something inside you which just got so hungry for nothing else but God that you wanted him and him alone. Scripture, in a lot of places, talks about God as a jealous lover. Exodus 20 verse 5, 31 verse 14, Deuteronomy 4, 24, 5, 9, 6, 15, 32, 16, Ezekiel, Joel, Nahum, Zephaniah, Zechariah, 1 Kings, a lot. It talks about God being a jealous lover a lot. Now, I'm not going to embarrass a couple by getting them up here, but imagine for a moment that we had a guy and a girl up here. And the guy has been giving all of his time to playing Xbox, to working on his car, to doing all of those things that are blokey things, watching sport, hanging out with his mates, doing all of those things. And all of his time, all of his energy, all of his focus has been over, over here. And there's a girl over here who is jealous for his attention who is jealous for his affection. Well, let's put it the other way around. Let's imagine that there's a girl and there's a guy, but the girl has been giving all of her time to these other things, to hanging out with her friends, to being involved in in all of these other activities that she's passionate about. And there's a bloke over here who is jealous for her attention. Now, I know none of you have ever been jealous before. This is a foreign example. But... Imagine for a moment if the one who had been giving all of their time and energy somewhere else turned around and said, oh, I'd like to spend time with you. Things would become perfect and flowery and amazing straight away. Is that right? The response, and this is from research, not from experience. (laughs) But the expected response would probably be, I'll do you. Do you actually want to spend time with me? Because you've been looking at all of these other things. You've been giving your time and your energy and your effort everywhere else. Do you actually want to spend time with me? Do you? Tell me. Tell me. Tell me what you love about me. Tell me how you want to spend time with me. Are you actually hungry for me? Do you actually desire me? Our God is a jealous God. And the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your mind. And if we've been giving our time and our energy and our effort to everything else, and we are dealing with a jealous God, then when we turn around 
our love should not just be a nonchalant, everyday kind of love where we turn around and go, oh, yeah, that's right, Jesus, you're there. Yeah, right, let's hang out. We need to get hungry. Have you written him a love letter or a song or a poem? Let me see if I can get myself in trouble. Have you danced with him? Have you gone for a drive with him? Have you given him your time? We only deliberately waste time with those we love. It is the purest sign that we love someone if we choose to spend time idly in their presence when we could be doing something more constructive. When was the last time you deliberately wasted time on Jesus? Wasted energy on Jesus. How long has it been since there was that deep, rooted, passionate hunger to just waste time with Jesus? Because that's what eternity looks like. And I tell you what, from where I'm standing, it looks good. Nothing to do but waste time with Jesus. We'll finish on this. Quote from Mother Teresa. I have found the paradox that if I love until it hurts, then there is no hurt, but only more love. There's a lot of other scriptures here that we could look at, but I think we'll finish there this morning. Are you passionate? What can you do to actually focus your heart back on him? If it was a human being and you turned around and you realized, oh my goodness, I adore you. How did I get so sidetracked? What are the things that you would do for them? What are the things that you would say to them? What are the activities that you would want to do with them? How would you want to spend time together? Because very, very similar with Jesus. In a minute, we're going to sing. When you sing, he hears you. When you sing and you don't mean it, he hears you. This morning... In a minute when we sing, I would encourage you, sing it if you mean it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. Lord Jesus, I just adore you. There is nothing in my life that I look forward to more than when I actually get to look at your face one-to-one, when I get to kiss your feet for myself. Lord Jesus, you know that we get sidetracked, that we give our hearts and our minds and our strength and our souls to other things, things that aren't you. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would help us to be hungry for you. Call us back to attention. Get our attention any way you have to. Don't let us take our eyes off you. Lord, we desire to be devoted to nothing else in this world except you. Lord Jesus, we love you. Amen.